Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Anne Fox, the CEO from Clinks, to today's podcast. Hi, Anne. Hi, Tammy. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. No problem. Just before we get going, would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, no problem. Hi, everybody. I'm Anne. I'm the chief exec of Clinks, which is the infrastructure charity across England and Wales for voluntary organisations working with people in the criminal justice system and their families. And we have a team of about 28 people. And what we try and do is help people in charities and social enterprises working with people in the justice system to do their jobs. I've been in my job for five years. It's a wonderful job. I absolutely love it. And every single day I wonder, am I any good at it? And yeah, that's me. I'm Irish. I live in the UK now. And I've pretty much always worked in charities, but I did do a bit of frontline. And that's maybe for later on in the chat. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Anne. And you're you're a mum of two um, working at home at the moment as well, aren't you? I am indeed. So we're talking on the first day of the new national lockdown and we planned this day, didn't we, Tammy? Because we thought the kids will be in school, it'll be nice and quiet. So I sit here holding (laughs) my breath, hoping that nobody screeches downstairs and that uh, YouTube will will hold their attention long enough with their dad while we have a chat. But yeah, so resilience is being tested all over the place at the minute and it has done, has been for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. I think the whole country is feeling it at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uncertainty, isn't it? And nobody knows quite what's going to happen, quite what is happening. And people are experiencing all of this really differently, depending on the circumstances that they're in and depending on their own resilience, what they have in the tank at any given time to deal with what comes at them. Yeah, and that was a perfect kind of seamless link into the subject for me. So thank you very much, because on series three, we are talking about emotional resilience and the aim of the sessions is really to kind of share some stories and share some tips and connect and empathise with frontline workers and everybody else in the middle of a pandemic. And how do we keep going? How do we manage everything that's going on around us? So I'd like to start off, if you don't mind, by just asking you um, what the term emotional resilience means to you. I do. I suppose I struggle to define this, but to me, emotional resilience is how capable I feel to deal with what comes at me in a day. And I often use the phrase, you know, have I got enough in the tank? You know, the emotional energy I'm going to need and how resilient and resistant that is to challenge. So emotional resilience for me is something that is organic. It's something that needs to be nurtured and replenished. So it's almost like, you know, I run a charity that supports other charities. If you think about the reserves, organizations that need to run themselves as an individual, you need something there to fall back on in hard times. And you need this emotional fuel and energy and nourishment for yourself. I think that to me is emotional resilience. 
And I think that's a lovely way of explaining it. But I like the way that within that, there's quite a lot of fluidity. So, you know, you said on any given day, and I think that's really important because every day in my life at the moment is very, very different. And well, we arranged to talk just over an hour ago now, and we've spent that hour talking to each other, offloading, debriefing. And, and yeah. for me, that's part of building my resilience to get through the rest of the day and tomorrow as well. So I really like that kind of notion of fluidity, how you feel today might not be how you feel tomorrow, because the situation externally and internally might be quite different. Yeah, and I think resilience, certainly for me, I feel my own resilience is contextually dependent. So some people will test my resilience, some people will replenish my resilience, some situations will do either of those things. And I think it's to understand it a bit like that. You know, I'm quite visual. And you know those kind of graphic equalizers I used to get on like stereos and you probably still do. But yeah, everything's online now, isn't it? And on your phone. But when you see things go up and down, yeah, the green and the red bars. And I think for me, resilience is a lot like that. It's, you know, it will flux in different situations. And a lot of it is about understanding that in yourself and understanding that in a group of people. So like me, I manage a team of people. I need to understand their resilience, their ebbs and flows things that are going to come challenge them the situations that they're in that will buffer that resilience that will replenish it that will you know fill up their tank and the stuff that will drain it and how we help each other what's complementary who's complementary and who might be you know best avoided and situations best avoided at certain times and no better time to test your resilience I suppose than a pandemic but I still would rather not have my resilience tested I'm not a person who enjoys that kind of stuff I enjoy fixing problems for other people, but I don't necessarily always enjoy the relentlessness of the change management challenge that we're facing right now. Yeah, well, I think that's really important recognition, to be fair, is where you say the relentlessness of the change management, because actually, you know, everybody knows that change is hard. And people push back against change. And yeah, actually, we're, we're now nine months into a continuously changing situation. There's also different types of change, though, isn't it? Like, I think if you proactively choose change, so it's the 5th of January today, so loads of people, not me, have made New Year's resolutions to positively change something in their life. And that is change that they will embrace. And therefore, even the difficult stuff of that is worth it. And they have control over that. I think when you are on the receiving end of, if you've been thrown into a situation you have to cope with, which most people are having to deal with now, then that's harder. Loss of control and lack of control and power really can test resilience. But I think what it does give us when we work with people who have never had power and control, it gives us a window in which we can be more empathetic. I personally believe that if there is one thing you need, if you're going to work with people who have been left behind in life, you need empathy. Uh, from empathy and kindness I think everything else can flow you need the ability to empathize and then you can get all the other hard tools but you need that capacity to empathize and you know I think particularly if you work in criminal justice you're you're talking all the time about people with a loss of liberty and a loss of power and although in it is in no way a comparable situation we are all dealing with every day the frustration of not being able to decide everything that we need to do And that there's an opportunity for us there to be empathetic. An opportunity to learn. 
But it's interesting because you you repeated the phrase twice and you used slightly different words each time. So you talked about the ability to emphasise and you talked about the capacity to emphasise. Now, we've talked numerous times over the last few years and we've ranted at each other about our frustrations of in the sector and about the funding cuts and the pressure and the political landscape and transforming rehabilitation. There's no surprise to us that the sector struggles at times and we need to be investing and supporting our frontline staff. Yet none of that has changed and we're now in a pandemic too. So when you talked about the ability and the capacity, in my mind, they immediately became two very separate things because you may go into a role and have the ability for whatever reasons previously, it might be your own frame of reference, your own life lessons, etc. You may absolutely have the ability and the capacity to have that empathy. But at the moment, capacity is being really tested because for all of the reasons that you've just talked about there. Yeah, and I think this is the thing. It's a really interesting time to think about what people who help other people need. And I think we have invested across, the. I've worked right across different types of voluntary sector organisations for like 20 odd years. And I think there is probably a fairly historic legacy of underinvestment in resilience in our staff in the kind of holistic approach of what does everybody need now the thing about the pandemic is we've become absolutely face to face with the fact that people are caring for vulnerable children they're caring for kids at home they're having to be teachers and everything else they maybe live in situations that aren't ideal for them you know they might be caring for elderly people they might be living on their own and now not able to, you know, connect with other people the way that they need to and have the social outlets. And all of that has come to us as employers and as supporters of our staff. And we have to make sure that those staff and volunteers are OK, because we're expecting so much of them right now because they are so tested. And actually, I think this is a really good time to do that. And I was never really that good at that or really focused on it. I think I've always come into my work more on the kind of system level change side of things. And what I have enjoyed, perversely enjoyed, I think, in the pandemic is thinking about myself as the boss and thinking, how kind are you being? How will people look back at this and see Clinks as an employer and a supporter? And will they think that we did a good job by them? And I would like to think that the answer will be yes now. And, you know, we've made some big decisions in that like giving people a lot of flexibility instead of saying leave everything on the field it's all about the sector we've moved probably temporarily but we're doing it now quite a few months to um everybody working 17 days a month if they're full-time so you work one friday and four and that is because our staff were getting completely burned out and worn out by the fact that every single organization they spoke to really needed them And they were really challenged all the time and they didn't have the solutions and they had to change everything that they did. And it was exhausting. And we as an organization have recognized that and said, we want you to rest. We want you to look after yourself. You are so important. We can't do any of this without you. We are not a machine. We are an organization of human beings who are living and working through a pandemic. Stopped using the phrase working from home. Personally, I'm at home trying to work. And trying not to live at work. I'm not in an office. I'm in my box room. You know, literally boxes full of boxes. <laughs> <laughs> like, not kidding anybody. 
the number of people I've spoken to, I think, is that their bed behind them? Or are they in their kitchen? <laughs> I'd just be eating all day. But for us, there are also then people saying, oh, that's 15% productivity drop in your team. And I think it's not because they're being as productive. They're doing what's needed of them. But I am not prepared to wear them out to support others because ultimately I cannot support you when you run an organization in our sector or any of those 500 plus organizations we support regularly if I wear out my staff or if I wear my staff to the point where they think nobody cares about them. So why should they care about anybody else? I'm not prepared to do that. But it is impossible sometimes to know what to do. I think the only way for me is I keep connected with other people who fill my tank that I can say, Psst, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Does anyone have a book? Does anybody oh. know how you're supposed to manage in a pandemic? But and you're talking very much there about honesty and honesty is just really enlightening because I think we need to hear people say, I don't know. And so therefore I'm doing my best. Like the examples you've just explained about the way that you've looked at yourself as a leader and you're judging yourself against something that you would have never foreseen historically. And so the fact that you're changing those words of judgments in the sense of actually how kind am I being? Am I looking after people? And I ensuring that they have enough in their tank to be able to give to the people that need it. But this is the thing, isn't it? I've always been a kind person, I reckon. And it's always something that I've thought is very important about me, that I am kind. But to me, that was not a skill at work. I was a person that did this job and also happened to be quite nice. In the last 10 months, I think, my niceness has been the most important thing about. Yeah. And that's become a skill that I have used. I'm not saying that people think about who she thinks she is. But it's just... I think you've got to look at what are your personal qualities and how do you use them in your work because work has changed so much. And I suppose the example would be we're in regular contact with the organisations we help and on their behalf, we are in daily contact with people working in the prison and probation service. Now, I could, if I wanted to, be perfectly justified to rant and roar all day at those people and say, you know, this isn't good enough and we need this and we need that and we need the other because we do. Because the organisations that I support have not got the information that they need. They have not got the communication they need. They haven't got the access they need. They haven't got the money. And, you know, they are my priority. But I know that by being unkind to the human being on the end of the phone who is dealing with the same stuff that I am dealing with, or maybe more, being unkind to them is not going to get us anywhere. And it's certainly not going to make me feel good about what I did with the day I got when I woke up. Yeah. And I think that I'm becoming a kind professional rather than a kind person with a job. You see what I mean? But that goes straight back to that empathy you talked about earlier, because it's not only empathy for our customers and our service users, people we're working for. It's also empathy for the people that we're working with, because all of our lives have changed. The pressure has increased. And it's sometimes it's easy to kind of let off steam to an unnamed person but actually they're dealing with similar to what we're dealing with at the moment. Yeah, well, we just don't know, do we? And and I think there's something for me about I've been in the voluntary sector a long time and it, I've always known it suited me. And I think in dealing so much with people in kind of statutory services, even more so than normal in, in the pandemic, I've realised that there is an honesty in our sector because a lot of people come to it through adversity in life or because they see an issue that they want to challenge head on. I think we do have an honesty in the way we communicate. 
I think we've always been, you know, it's maybe never been structured as mentoring and coaching, you know, in programs and invested well-developed models. But generally, we work in ways where we at least try and look out for one another, don't we? So people do have those. You go into meetings and want to say, first 10 minutes is everybody, how are you? Whereas I'll go into meetings in government and nobody asks anybody how they are. And whereas to somebody else, that might be chit-chat and waffle. Actually, maybe how somebody is is really important and affecting what's going to happen for the next 60 minutes. And I think that's hugely important right now. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's interesting because, as you know, I've made the step across from working as a CEO in a charity to being a, a business owner. And for me, mm. there's been a lot of kind of identity connections to that. And we absolutely work and support with charities and I consult with charities. So I'm still very much within the sector, but I am spending probably about 50% of my time with businessy people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what's really interesting is we're just about to recruit again for um, more TAFE facilitators. And so I asked in the group of TAFE facilitators, I said, we're just sending out our recruitment. I said, we want to put in the advert kind of what the added value is and et cetera. Can you tell me why you continue to work with us and deliver training for us? And about 80% of our people also work within statutory services or charity because that's the USP, the operational experience element. And yeah. really interestingly, everybody came back and said kindness and values, everybody. And I said, well, hang on a minute, there's got to be something else as well. And they all came back and said the same. And what's really quite sad about it, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this, is that actually a lot of people who are working in actually local authorities and criminal justice services, they're getting that from us as a facilitator and really starting to recognise that they should be getting that at work and aren't necessarily. And I do wonder whether it's because I've taken into my new business surroundings, the same as you, the fact that I've worked in charities for the last 20 years, and actually that matters to me so much and is, to me, I think, the actual fundamentals of everything. Yeah, I think it is. I think values, they're so hugely important and we don't nurture them enough and we don't necessarily talk about it. That, you know, I was the biggest critic of stuff like this when I was a member of staff like not in senior teams at all, working in charities, oh, we're going on some development day talking about values. And I think actually it's because for me, it's quite inherent. I would only work in organisations where I felt like a match. I now know that that was values. That was me looking at that organisation as in, I like what they do, what they stand for. And I want to be part of that. But I hadn't articulated it. And I think it's important for organisations, particularly right now, you know, if you're working with people, say, who are experiencing homelessness, are in contact with the criminal justice system. There's loads of different things you probably can do, but it's how you do it. I think that makes a difference. And it's how you do it that often people who've been able to get services they need to transform their own lives and get that power, that's what they talk about. They talk about not the service that someone gave them, like the type it was, you know, I got a job coach or I got whatever. They talk about an individual and the way that person worked with them and the welcome. And I'm struck by that all the time, that it's how you do things, you know, and that honesty and integrity and that particularly, I think, in the pandemic, we need to think so much more about the personalised and individualised and holistic approach. And that can only be good because people experience the same thing really differently, depending on who they are, what's happened to them before and what they're facing into. 
I completely agree, but I think also that we need to widen our minds and answer the exact same questions for our service users and our frontline workers at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Because I think yeah. there's, I talk regularly about the fact that actually it's just circumstance that is the difference. And actually what we need is the same. And so one of the reasons this series of the podcast exists is it does frustrate me that actually in a lot of instances, and not not necessarily all statutory services, certainly some charitable services as well. But as I look around, in a lot of instances, frontline workers have been a bit forgotten and they've been expected to just keep continuing. And I know that yeah. it's a different sector than we're talking about now. But if I reflect on the last two weeks of Christmas holidays in inverted commas for teachers and how actually they've not been able to rebuild because of external pressures and concerns and worries about what's going to happen post-Christmas for us with this now new lockdown and such like. I think where's the, where's the recognition that actually, whether you're at the moment in a circumstance where you're accessing services, whether you're in a circumstance where you're delivering services, or whether you're on the periphery, where's the recognition that we all need what you're talking about? Yeah, I think I'm not going to get political about teachers or particular workers and that. But I think if we don't invest in the individual who is the face of that service, so be it, you know, a teacher, a social worker, a frontline worker in a women's centre for women leaving prison, we don't invest in that individual, then we can't give the service user, the client, what they need. And I run an infrastructure organisation for charities and social enterprises, organisations that are supposed to be there for social purpose and public benefit to help people change their lives. So your staff and your volunteers, they are your tools, not to depersonalise people, but actually to say the most essential ingredient that you have in helping that transformation are the people who have come to work for you and the people who have come to volunteer for you and give you their time. So you have to invest in that and you have to understand what they need and what they're going through. And it is really difficult. You know, we were faced with all sorts of challenges and we don't employ frontline staff, but yet our workers almost became frontline because of the immediacy of the issues that our members were facing, which was quite interesting for us. And we do have people that have frontline backgrounds. We've a nice mixture of, you know, people who've been very long in the tooth, like me, working a long time. <laughs> people who are at the start of their career who bring a beautiful energy and passion and commitment and, you know, into things in different ways. So you get that nice mixture and actually just coming together because that's been challenging. You know, we come together on a Monday on Zoom. It's like some twisted, distorted version of the Muppets, you know, and it's so odd. And, and I miss, I miss the people I work with. I really yeah. do. And I worry about them more because I can't pick up on the hunched shoulders that someone walked in. I can see brave faces every day. And I wonder, is that a brave face or, you know, is that just, are they okay? And I can't tell because I can't pick up any of the nonverbal cues. Yeah, I can't What's observe really... and hear how else they're getting on. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we all know that 70% of communication is body language, yet we can't see anybody's yeah. bodies. Um, and tell you how tall they even are exactly I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Tay Training and Training for Influence Tay Training exists to help you deliver exceptional services services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable 
All of our facilitators are operational experts. They tailor the training to your needs. They make it engaging and interactive. And really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. We recognise the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives. But to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. So training for influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. So I know Clinks does a wonderful job of supporting organisations, charitable organisations within the criminal justice sector. Is this something that you're talking about when you're representing organisations at the moment? Are you? Because I know for us, for instance, I'm connected to a variety of different people who I know have got perspectives with regards to what needs to be done differently and where needs to be invested in. And the difficult thing is actually everywhere, particularly from a safeguarding or a delivering safe services perspective, nearly everywhere needs investing in to an extent. But one of the things that certainly I believe is we absolutely have to recognise and invest in frontline staff so that they will have the capacity to be able to continue doing their roles as the pandemic continues, but also in the aftermath of the pandemic, because all of the stats now are showing that complex needs, difficulties, poverty, abuse, etc., is is all rising, unfortunately. So we're going to need our frontline workers on their A-game, recognising that actually they've been involved in all of this and influenced and impacted by the pandemic too. Yeah. And even before the pandemic, you know, the last few years, so we do an annual survey, state of the sector, looking at what's going on for criminal justice organisations. And the last four years, we picked up that organisations were dealing with more people and that their needs were more complex and more challenging. And what that means is frontline workers are faced more and more with dilemmas of people coming to them in dire need who they maybe aren't able to help. And what does that do to you? And fundamentally for me, that's actually gets to a very basic need in me because that's kind of how I ended up where I am now doing what I'm doing now. So I harbored illusions of being a social worker for all through my teens. And that's what I wanted to do and didn't quite get the exams and didn't quite have the educational background and stuff. But in the end, ended up on a degree. And that was going to get me to be a social worker. And I did put myself through college by doing community care jobs and working in nursing homes and stuff. And this was all I ever wanted to be. And I ended up faced with a dilemma with a brilliant tutor who saw in me my capacity to burn out in about a year. And she said to me, you will really struggle to see people who need stuff. You will see their needs. You will see their needs quite clearly, Anne. And you will see that they deserve much more than they get. And you will also see that there's a complete paucity of what's there to meet their needs. And I'm worried that you won't last because you've got so much compassion and so much empathy and the rage 
will come for you and burn you out. And she directed me very kindly to a postgrad degree in social policy where I could, she reckoned, polish and harness that rage and that ability to see needs and come up with ideas into advocacy. And that's where I went. And I remember thinking, oh, I feel like a complete fraud and this isn't the right stuff to do. But she was right because when I did some frontline work, that was absolutely what I felt that this is nonsense. And I didn't feel that I was any better at supporting people and meeting their needs than anybody else. But there were things that I could do with the information about, like I worked in a a neighborhood center for the unemployed, like, you know, an information center in a really disadvantaged area, my local community back in Dublin. And at the end of the day, I would top up all the little pieces of paper about what people came to us with, what difficulties about, you know, loan sharks and debt collectors and their issues in access into drug services that they needed for their kids or massive housing problems and huge issues with debt and benefit. And I would top those up and be able to see, oh, actually, there's a problem in this, that these people aren't quite getting the right information or let's get this information to the local politicians or go and see the housing office about, you know, just the hours of the day that services are open and how they don't fit with the hours of the day that people need to take kids to school or go to work. And that's where, you know, for me, I stopped burning out because I got energy from it rather than letting it drag me down. So I feel like I was better suited to helping more people by not being in the one-to-one situation, which wouldn't have been good for me. But she said to me, like, a year to two years, you'll be great. And then you'll just, that's my burnout noise. And I didn't want that, you know. So what's really uh, kind of striking me there is a couple of things. One of them is, thank goodness for her. Do you know, people say as you go through your career or as you go through life a little bit, you see things differently. And certainly I've just turned 40 this year and I find myself being able to recognise that in other people as well, recognise some of their strengths or where they need extra support. And compassion fatigue is real and people really do burn out from it. And vicarious trauma. I was also disgusted and offended that (laughs) she was telling me that my dream wasn't for me how how dare she you know well, <laughs> yeah. I was going to swear there but like I really that's I was I was like 18 19 years old and that's how I felt because it was really important to me I'd had experiences as a younger person of real trauma that I wanted I now see I was trying to heal other people that I had missed the opportunity to heal and it, it wasn't my job to do that you know I couldn't save every soul so it was really good for me I I hate to think what damage I could have done to other people really And I like to think that I maybe haven't done that as I've gone through. But that empathy, you know, there are things about that. So for people, I think right now working in frontline, we've got to think about just how much more challenging this is. And also things were really difficult. Things were really dark and things were really dire. So the last thing anybody needed was a pandemic that just made it a million times worse for the people that were trying to help and the the people who were trying to do that helping. Because, you know, we had a meeting just before Christmas of faith organisations that go into prisons and other voluntary organisations with some of the operational leads in the prison service. We were talking about the fact that people coming out of prison right now, that we needed to get across this issue that actually the stuff that normally happens at Christmas won't be happening. There won't be kids Christmas parties where you can now get a present from Santa that will be the present from Santa. There won't be Christmas dinners for people. The community effort you see at Christmas 
wasn't able to happen in the same way. So people were going without. And people coming out now of prison into a completely different world where everything's gone online. But yet, you know, you may or may not have an appropriate phone and permission to put certain apps on it. So we really need to invest in making sure that the people who are doing this work are okay and are supported because they are going to have to go to even more extraordinary lengths. I think they're brilliant. I think the people working in the criminal justice voluntary sector particularly are just some of the best people I've ever met. And we have to invest in those people. We have to support them and we need to help them understand that they're not a number or a cog in a wheel, but they are an essential ingredient. And one of the most important things we need to do is we need to understand the information that they need to support their service users so they don't feel like fraud. So they feel helpful to those people and are helpful to those people who deserve the very best and get them that information. So that's kind of our clinks. That's what we've spent the 10 months trying to do, get information that should be easier to get than it is. I'll just kind of leave it at that. But <laughs> to try and get that information out, say this is what's happening with this lockdown and this is what's happening with, you know, what you can and can't do and trying to then collect their stories. So we've spent 10 months leaning in and listening to the sector. What do you need? What's going on for you? And adjusting our own services to suit and then, because a huge part of what we do is advocacy with HMPPS and MOJ and the system, and also with funders to talk and say, this is what's going on for organisations, and this is what they will need from you. More of this, please. Less of this, please. And to try and, you know, act as that facilitator and be open to that. And hopefully organisations, if anyone's listened, thinks, oh, I don't feel that Clinks has given us what they need. Let us know what you need. And if we can meet that need, we will. Yeah, I think that's a really good point there as well. And I think as we come to the end of our discussion, I think one of the things that is really important that we kind of, I guess, recognise is the fact that we don't know unless we know and none of us know everything. So as much as you're giving some brilliant examples there of the support that Clinks is given, you've given a great personal example of what influenced your life and the direction that you went in. But we need to know so people need to be talking openly about actually this isn't helpful for me or this is helpful for me and we need to allow people to do that I think that makes such a big difference because we all need things that are quite different yeah and we need to encourage people to reflect and to understand themselves it's interesting when you like you sent me a bit of information about what we talk about you know there was a thing that struck me about how can you recognize if you're struggling and I think self-awareness is really important. I know I'm struggling when I'm pretty much doing everything on my own. So this ridiculous belief I have that I'd be better off if everybody just left me alone is actually my trigger that things aren't okay because I don't hold all the answers. So I think allowing people a bit of space to be aware of what's going on for them and how it is impacting on them is really important. Particularly, I think, for frontline people where every phone call that they take, which now they're probably taking in their own family home, you know, providing that support. I was thinking about it earlier on in the crisis. When I worked frontline, I did employment support for people, including people leaving prison. And I was thinking about taking those phone calls and those meetings with people if I was sitting in my bedroom as a 23-year-old in a little flat. You know, people talking about the real difficulties they had getting clothes and somewhere to live and feeling safe and staying away maybe from people who were trying to sell them drugs that they didn't need anymore, that they didn't want to take anymore. And they were trying desperately to give up. And how that would have felt if I was just not around a team of people and, you know, my supervisors and my supporters 
and the people I was learning from and how lonely and isolated I would have felt. And I think we've got thousands of people out there having to work like that now for the first time ever. And I, I don't actually know what is the support that's being given to them. And even the opportunity to reflect at the end of the day and say, right, so how am I going to pack this up now and leave my office when my office has my bed in it or my kitchen table or whatever it is? You know, I have a 20 second commute now from work to downstairs. I used to have two hours as much as I hated it. I used to moan to you all the time. About it. No, <laughs> I had time to take off one hat and put on the other. And now I don't. And I do worry about the well-being of people who now have to carry the burden of being the one person that somebody can talk to about the darkest things that are happening for them and about the lack of kindness that they're faced with and the lack of essentials. Yeah, and going back to what you said earlier about the fact that you knew that as a young person wanting to go into social work, that you wanted to be able to provide everything that person needed to be able to change their life or move forward and things like that. And your mentor, your manager at the time said, you're going to be frustrated by the fact that you can't do that. Well, actually, we can't do that even more now. Yeah. Do you know, if at the moment, a lot of services can't meet people face to face. They can't give them the same quality of service as previously. And there's so many services that are doing amazing things to be able to keep delivering. But equally, their hands are tied in a variety of different situations. Yeah. And, and their so ability actually... to meet those needs has always had a limit, but it's even more limited now. But I am still the thing that makes me happiest in all of this is seeing those organisations that we support continue and to just be so innovative, to keep going, to move to walking with service users in the park at a safe distance with big warm smiles and warm coats in the winter and just staying connected to people. We need to have an awareness that we can't fix everything for everybody, but being there when people, when, you know, when the lights went out, when things are very hard for people. That's what we remember is now, because we're all human beings. And I think that that's what our sector needs to do for people now, is to be the person that they will remember that didn't turn their back and didn't go. Might not be able to solve all the problems or even give what you come to expect and what you need. But to be able to be there to provide people with support because we have an inherent belief in that person's deservedness of something better, of their potential for a good life. Uh, and I think we come to kind of a natural end there in the sense of that's such a lovely phrase to finish on and particularly connecting back to something you said just two moments ago which I think is really really powerful and that is just we're all human beings and that's the thing that I truly believe has to be recognised and seen more and more because service users, customers, they're not numbers and we advocate strongly for them to be seen as the people that they are. I feel that that in this instance and in this discussion absolutely also pertains to frontline workers. Again, they're not numbers. We need to see them for the people that they are and across both groups. If we can provide what's needed, and quite often that is that empathy, then we're doing the best that we can. It's often, like I wasn't very good at science. I've said I did social science because I couldn't count. But I do remember the whole concept of a chemical reaction. When you put two things together and if they're right, you know, you'll get a particular spark. And to me, that's always been what I've seen with frontline workers in these transformational services that you get around criminal justice around you know any kind of deep rooted social problem and kind of system barrier issues where it's the relationships that people form 
it's not the practical thing, the CV or whatever. It's the fact, oh, I remember that person, that Tammy. She was really nice to me and she helped me believe in myself. So, you know, I'll give that try. I'll apply for that job. She says I can do it. And, you know, I like her. And there's something about it. That chemical reaction, I suppose, that frontline workers in the sector help create with people. And that's because they see each other as equals. Yeah. And helping someone who's faced that adversity in life and gone through all that to see themselves as equals sometimes, I think, is the most powerful thing that we can do. I often think that the people I'm learning most about myself from in the last five years, but in this pandemic, are those people who have walked in the darkest of life's passages and they come back with a torch in their hand for the rest of us. No, absolutely. And what a poignant ending. I, I always like talking to you. Do you know, we always put the world to rights, but I'm really <laughs> pleased that this time we've recorded it and that it will be going on air for other people to listen to. I won't because um, then I'll listen to myself and say, there she is now sounding like Mrs. Brown again. Oh, no, no, you won't at all. Do tell me, though, is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners? Any final words, anything to finish up on? The the theme of this podcast has absolutely been about kindness, empathy, compassion for yourself and for other people. That's come through really strongly. And so I thank you for that, because that's absolutely what I believe in. But is there anything you'd like to finish on? I think I got frustrated earlier. A few months ago, somebody kept using this phrase to me, you can't pour from an empty cup. And I think I got frustrated because the idea of pouring out of a cup, stuff goes all over the place, you know. But what I would say to people is kindness is not something you should just do to other people. You literally cannot look after anybody if you don't look after yourself. Now, I'm not pretty good at that. And most of us aren't. I think we tend to be givers in this sector. Look after yourself because you are needed. And you may not feel that you're doing a very good job right now. But you are probably someone's light. There is probably someone who you are their person that's helping them keep going. So keep going, but look after yourself and recognise that this will be having an impact on you. Yeah, that's it. Take care, I suppose. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.